everybody who's trickling in. I hope that you're having a great day today. And I'm glad to see Devoid. You are very timely, as well as Joe Barca. Look at this. We could just run the space, just us people in this room right now, because you guys are awesome. Hey, Mark Danowski. Hey, Joe Barca. Hey, Dick Westheimer. And hey, most of all, perhaps, to Tim. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing, Katie? I'm doing good, but as you know, I'm rocking my sinus infection today with my throat coat tea, my coffee, and my water all lined up like my arsenal here. Well, I know you're prepared. Um, maybe we should start out with the uh, opening poem. And uh, so the topic today is plating poems, which is a concept that uh, I never thought of until I realized that you went to culinary school and uh, talking about the presentation of, po or, uh, of dishes. And we do the same thing with poems. And I thought that was an interesting topic to talk about, um, the presentation. How do you make a poem look on the page? Uh, and, and how can you make the uh, most of a poem just by the way it appears? I thought I'd start out with uh, this poem, which I'm not sure if we would have published it if it weren't for the shape of it. So it's a concrete poem shaped like something. Uh, and I think Katie's going to pin this to the notes if you want to take a look at it. But it's um, shaped kind of like a big flame coming up, and you'll, or maybe um, the goddess Kali, a kind of combination of both. This is a poem by Paul Siegel. And uh, I don't know if we would have published this if it weren't for the shape, but the shape does so much to this. So uh, this is from rattle number 32, winter 2009. So pretty old poem there. This is, uh, and the title's not great. So we'll talk about that too, but it's uh, 062500 fish. I'll tell pavilion, North Carolina. Left side mystified stoners. Oh my God, our heroine khaki hat frat bros toss bottle caps in from the right. Set break on lawn at summer show, fishman side, 25,000 spent the last hour, 10, gigging out, dancing, NICU, sample in a jar, old home place, P-Y-I-T-E, water in the sky, funky bitch, horn, heavy things, dirt split open and melt. And now Jeff and Bones are mind goners, all gooball, body hide, up and in right behind, chopped up, black hair, dyed red, dyed raver, bright, inferno red, no kidding, Lip ringed candy flip, neon pop, plastic bracelets, glittery skin. And she's not just masturbating, lying down, full on, head back, back arch, slapping herself down in the patchwork, rub, stroke, moan, oh, slapping with what looks like the multiple arms of Kali, Ma, and with her, with whatever it is that's on her, Ruby's trolling, showing the hold. She's upside down, staring at into Jeff as if she were Shiva, about to be ferociously dominated. Quartet returns, crowd erupts, got a jabu open second set. The whatever you want it to mean, Melody stands her up. CK5's light show coats her skin in bouncing blue and off comes her top. Brawless breasts are hers to fondle. Everyone's around get gaping. Dancers having serious difficulties. Make her stop, a girl cries. Somebody do something. But then screw all that. She wants it. Kalima's back on her back, arching. Yes, eyes, Jeff, again, groans to town, slapping herself like a bass guitar, uproariously finishes off and passes out, topless. Guy to the right goes, hmm, you're something special, ain't you? And two from the left, go get security. So that is a really interesting poem, shaped like uh, being high with a cloud of smoke and also um, the goddess Kali or something, a really fascinating shape to the poem. And it's a, it's a shape that sold the poem. Um, I do like the ending a lot when I go off to get security, um, but the title's not great. Um, you know, 062500 fish. I would call it something different, but the shape of the poem was so interesting that it made me want to publish the poem. And so we did. 
So uh, it's a good place to start out talking about plating poems because the plating was what got this poem published. I have to say, good on you for being bold enough to read that poem. Like I would have been confused as to which part of the flame to read next within, <laughs> within reading that particular poem, but definitely a cool piece. And I can see why, I guess the title is probably the date of the fish concert is what I'm envisioning. Yeah, here, exactly. But even I think like, part of a plating poem is the title and the title here, I think it's just a sort of a rough title. It is the date. It's the date of the fish concert and where it was. I would call it something like fish at the Altel Pavilion. Uh, just make it a little more, more clean, but, uh, but it worked. Well, how, how does the line cross for you with, in terms of being gimmicky with like, so we're kind of breaking into something that, um, I for sure wanted to cover in this space, which is just concrete poetry within terms of like, when you think about plating a poem, concrete poetry or shape poems is something that instantly pops into at least my mind, because that really is just taking that concept of making a poem into visual art very seriously. But you have pretty mixed opinions on concrete poetry in general. Yeah, I I, I'm right. usually not a fan, but I think it distracts from the poem um, most often because a poem is, is the music of speech and the, and the poem on the page is kind of like the sheet music of the poem. And so if you're, if you're watching, say if you're, if you're listening to like someone play jazz, but then you're like staring at the sheet music instead, doesn't that take away from the quality of listening to it? So I always think that the, the way the poem feels on the page should not be something that you're really aware of uh, more like a, an impression like of someone's body language as they walk in the door or something like that is more what I usually think of the shape of a poem as. Um, but then sometimes it works. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you want a cake that's shaped like a, um, I don't know, like a basketball hoop to celebrate, you know, the championship game or something like that, you know, you never know. And sometimes the, uh, the shape is more important than the taste of the cake inside. Right. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case for me. Like my rules on sometimes I get the urge to make a shape poem. And so when, when I feel that way, my first question is like, it has to be a good poem, like a really good poem independent of that. And then the shape really has to add something that ideally is not just like an obvious thing, like this is the shape of this. But that being said, it actually is that and it's a humorous poem. So I think that that, that helps it. So I'd be definitely curious to hear from other people at this point, I know that a lot of you guys said in really interesting things to, to talk about. So I don't know who wants to jump in first. I'd love to hear your opinion. Um, of course, I can I'll offer an opinion. I, I, even the poem that Tim just shared, I'm not sure whether the shape doesn't distract from it for me. Um, you know, and I know you, you, you're going to share later on the uh, Tishani Doshi uh, poem from January's um, Poetry Magazine. And I just found her essay to be about this type of, we'll call it plating poems, not to be particularly convincing about this as a form that, um, you know, that, that helps me become more engaged in a poem as a reader of a poem. Um, so that's just sort of my first, my first bah humbug take on things. But, but yeah, well, Katie, can you, uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I, I really want to take this and I don't know where to go because I um, I'm not a food person. I, I don't go on many food journeys. But, um, but, but so what is it, what are the rules about like, if you're in some, if you're in like the French laundry or something like that, right? That's a fancy restaurant in San Francisco, I believe. What, what is it, what do they do to plate the food there? Is it like, 
is there a sense that something would be too much like distracting? Cause you want the, I think it's such a great metaphor because it's what you want to do. You want the meal to be an event, the meal of the poem to an event. You want it to like have a lot of nuanced, complicated flavor, but you don't want the way it sits on the plate to detract from that. But you also don't, you also want the, you know, everything to be like carefully curated, right. As it's arranged with like space around it and, and all that stuff. So, so what, what can you pull from, from culinary school and tell us about this and, and how can you apply it to poetry? Yeah, I think I should first admit that I can be making like a very basic dinner, but I still like it's ingrained in me from culinary school to be like, okay, I've got a plate dinner. And it's like, you're plating a peanut butter sandwich, girl, get over yourself. But <laughs> there's like, even like if you're writing a really humble poem, right, the way you present it is super important. So one thing with it is that plating, how you plate and fine dining has massively evolved. So like in the 70s, it was like, if you know, if you think of the 70s, and like, I don't know, like, post like a really plush couch and like those crazy fur robe things people used to wear at least i imagine them wearing it like everything was sort of over the top and way over abundant and now though if you're talking about fine dining and the french laundry which is in napa california um, <laughs> um there's a lot of negative space you know so white space around the food because what i think you know these top chefs have realized over time is that allowing for the white plate generally most most chefs prefer white plates for this reason it creates negative space around the food and that's a really apt summary for me with thinking about poems uh and allowing that white space of the page to go ahead and surround them in a way that makes the words stand out even more and i think too with that uh joe barca picked a really great shape poem this week too that i think would be great about swans so lovely subject lovely poem <laughs> I think we have to hear it. You want it, want me to read it? Heck yes, I do. All right. Um, so it's tagged, right? So if people want to look at it, um, it's linked to this call. But I'll mention a few things. It's written by a poet named John Hollander, and it's called Swan and Shadow. And it's the reflection of a swan, a swan and its reflection in words. So I'm going to read it. It's a little bit long, but it's a little bit rich. Dusk above the water hang the loud flies here, oh so gray, then what a pale signal will appear when soon before its shadow fades, where here in this pool of opened eye, in us, no, upon us, as at the very edges of where we take shape in the dark air. This object bears its image awakening, ripples of recognition that will brush darkness up into light. Even after this bird, this hour, both drift by atop the perfect sad instant now, already passing out of sight, toward yet untroubled reflection, this image bears its object darkening into memorial shades, scattered bits of light, no, of water, or something across water, breaking up, no, being regathered soon, yet by then a swan will have gone. Yes, out of mind, into what vast, pale hush of a place, past, sudden dark, as if a swan sang. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful poem. And so it is pinned at the top for anybody who didn't see it. It's, you know, basically a swan that is reflected upon another swan, very much tying in with the theme. And for me, that's a great example of one that really gets me into the right mindset to look at. And there's a lot going on, I think I should mention, too, with NFT poets doing this. Um, one that immediately springs to mind, because if you look at this poem and you're an NFT poet, I could think that this was a poem by Merchant Coppola, 
who is somebody doing uh, experimental typography and making what they're calling visual poetry everywhere. And that's out there, there too. And then somebody else who's dealing with kind of shape poems because of the nature of writing palindrome poems is Odd Writings, who's in here with us. And I'm guessing has a pretty strong and nuanced opinion on all this. Katie, could I mention one thing before I hop off and let other people chat? Yeah, I'm sorry. I should have asked your opinion. I didn't. I wasn't just trying to use you to read this one, though. Katie, I, I've learned I need to be prepared for your call every week, you know. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to say on one level, I agree with Tim that sort of the words should drive the poem. The words are the magic of the poem. And yet I agree with you, Katie, that if you're going to do it, the poem, and I think this one, has to be exceptional. And the shape, and I know, Katie, you talk, talk about titles enhancing the poem. The shape has to enhance the poem. So I think there's room for it, but I, I don't think it's sort of going to be the core of poetry. But there's room if everything is exceptional. So those are my thoughts. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I do think the bar is higher because the risk of it just being a gimmick is so high. You know, and so it really has to compensate for that in a myriad of ways. Um, so, George, now you can speak now that I'm <laughs> being a better host. Thanks. Um, well, basically, uh, I just wanted to make a, a note. Uh, I think when, when, you, when you shape a poem, I think there is a difference in the impact that it has if you're considering a poem that's written on paper versus a poem that's an NFT, which could be in a gallery. The reason I say this is because sometimes I'll go into an, an NFT gallery or a metaverse gallery, and when people have poems on there, if they don't shape them in a certain way, it can be very hard to find a particular poem that you're looking for. Like, say, if you're walking around, it's just, you know, pragmatic kind of thing. If you're walking around, say, you know that in, in this gallery, there's just one poem that you really want to look at and whatever. If all the poems kind of look the same, uh, man, it takes a long time to find it unless there's some kind of search option on the, on the, on the other hand, if you can shape a poem that actually, you know, that actually adds to the accessibility within the gallery. And I, I know this, this seems like a, maybe kind of a minor point. Uh, but I think it is something that, that, that's different between something on a page and, uh, something displayed on a wall. I think uh, there's one way to think about this where it's the same, though, which is uh, another metaphor I wanted to pull in. But uh, I always think of poems, of course, as a dance. So it's like you have the, the person who wrote the poem is like the leader in the dance. But because poems are so participatory, because the, the, my breath is becoming your breath and we're sort of dancing between the two and, and my understanding of the poem as a, a reader or a listener is sort of involved in that. So I always think of it as a kind of duet. And um, there's a way that you, um, you're like being asked to dance uh, by somebody. Like, it's like imagine you're at a dance hall and someone walks up and you and says, hey, can I dance? Uh, you're, the, the first impression you have of that person is going to determine whether or not you want to dance. I mean, that's the first thing that goes involved. So if there's somebody who you look like you want to dance with, then you're more, more willing to take their hand and go dance. And I think that's the way to think about it. So if you approach a poem in a gallery or an NFC gallery online or on a page in a book, it's always that first impression you get from just seeing the shape of the poem. And of course, the, we talked about it already, but the shape poems, the sort of concrete stuff, it, you know, is one way to do it that makes it interesting possibly. But just having a shape 
that looks like intention was put into it, that like somebody dressed up for the occasion uh, can make all the difference. I mean, no one's ever asked me to dance, Katie, so I don't know uh, what goes into that. But I would say um, <laughs> if someone were to ask you to dance, I'd want somebody who looked confident, looked like they, uh, you know, dressed the part, things like that. So uh, what do you think about that metaphor? I think I'm taking notes for after the space. I'm going to go get a zoot suit and look very confident. <laughs> No, I, I think that, that you make really excellent poems and points. I just that was funny. I said poems instead of points. I was gonna say too though, I would think that with the number of poems you've read, and I know we have a couple editors also here in the audience that have read a tremendous number of poems we'll get to in a minute. But like I would think you can process pretty instantly, you know, like you're saying, if you're likely to find a good poem just by glancing in a, mm-hmm. for a microsecond because your brain has been so trained. So like it's one of the things, you know, if a poem has consistent line lengths, is it more likely to, to be one that you think has promise or like just aesthetically your brain processing it in that microsecond? Like what do you think your your almost subconscious is looking for for you? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, we, I was talking about this uh, with my friend Eric Campbell, maybe on the Rattlecast, or maybe we were just talking one day. But he was saying how he, he's a Eng- high school English teacher, at least was, until he got tired of uh, dealing with everything and quit. But um, he always used to say that he could, felt like he could grade student papers from the far side of the room. If you just like held up the paper in the air, he could just tell what the grade was going to be based on the shape of the paragraphs, like how long they were and whether or not the title was formatted in the way that like somebody cared about. And the same thing is completely true for poems. Um, but it's really hard to, to articulate what, like how to recognize because there's so many different ways. It's not just a matter of the line lengths and stanza lengths being all similar. Um, you know, there's certain poems, like if you look at something like Bukowski, who's um, a great poet, of course, and a really rough kind of style. And his rough kind of style fits with the way his lines move in and out. Sometimes there's just like, it is on a line. And sometimes, it, you know, the lines are longer. And, and there's really no, there's a seemingly no rhyme or reason to it, but you can still tell in some way that I've never been able to figure out. Um, just that even, even if the, the lines are ragged and they run through the poem a certain way, there's a sense of intentionality. And I think that's the key that you can notice. And somehow you're sort of, by reading a lot of poems, you tune into that sense of like, this poem looks like this for a reason, whatever that reason might be. And it could be that I want it to feel rough and, and going all over the place like Bukowski, or it can be like, I want there to be a specific shape and a beauty to it that, that has a certain, even the same number of characters on each line, some people do. And so it really depends, but there's this still this sense of like, somebody put some thought into this, which is what going back to the plating food thing. I think the idea that, you know, the food is not just thrown on a plate, but some thought went into how this was being presented, no matter how it is being presented, uh, is what really matters. Yeah, are we allowed to just say that poems should be pretty or interesting? Like, they should look visually attractive. And uh, part of the reason why I am such a big believer on poems being hung in galleries and walls is because I think typography, if you choose the right one, is intrinsically beautiful. And it can, before you even process the actual words, which are the meat of a poem to me, um, you can get a sense of visually it just being something that's beautiful as well. So we have a couple hands up. I think George, yours was up first. And then I do want to hear from Louisa and Mark, because I think that being poetry editors, too, they have a, a strong opinion on this, I would imagine, also. Thanks. Um, I just wanted to say one other thing regarding uh, pragmatism behind uh, you know, the shaping of a poem. Uh, so like you already mentioned, I like to I like to write word unit palindrome poems. Now, specifically for palindrome poems, I think it helps uh, 
simply on simply by the way for example i like to i like to make mine look like hourglasses and so there's a little a little you know play on there because you turn it upside down it's like oh yeah it's the same kind of you know backwards and forwards or whatever but the the other thing is that sometimes you want to write something and you don't want to like you don't want to make it obvious that it's a, of a certain form. I don't want to say, you know, hey, everybody, look, a palindrome poem, and here it is. You know, I'd rather have them realize it themselves. And if I have something that's shaped like an hourglass, it seems to me, and I, I don't have any, any uh, you know, evidentiary uh, data to, to support this, but it seems to me that if something is shaped like an hourglass, you would be much more likely to, to notice that the middle line, which maybe has you know, the, the very center of the poem, which is the pivot, has only one word. If right above it, the next word is just, the next sentence is like maybe three words. It's much easier to notice that those three words are the other three words backwards. In other words, it's, I think it would be easier to notice the backward uh, state of the poem. And so that, it, it, again, it's another kind of pragmatic thing. But in, in my case, uh, I think it's very specific to, to palindromes or, or trying to try to make some kind of pattern visible to the user that, or to the reader that you don't want to point out, you know, sort of blatantly. That's a really yeah. good point. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tim. <laughs> no, I was just going to say um, that, that, yeah, I think the, the shape of a poem, the way the poem looks on the page, the goal should be to teach the poet or the reader how to read the poem how to encounter it. So I think that's why negative space plays so much into it. And so if there's a, a poem like a haiku with a lot of negative space around it, there's a sense that it sort of stands on its own in this sort of slow, quiet way. And you want to like leave a lot of room around it. Whereas like a James Tate poem, which has these really long lines with no you know conscious breaks. There are really not a lot of stanzas for his, his letter poems anyway. It's all sort of one block of long text. That's a poem that you want to read sort of fast and get lost in the image that the poem is creating. And so in both cases, and, and, and the uh, palindrome poems are a great example of it. They're teaching a reader how to encounter the poem before, like subconsciously before we even start to read, we have a sense of how we should read it just by the shape. And that's why I call poems on the page like the sheet music of it, because that's a way that you can show um, how the poem should be read, where the music actually lives, and uh, is, is by showing off the negative space and how you want to. I always think of long lines, you read them faster, short lines, you read them slower just because of those breaks. And so they, they sort of set the pace a little bit for the poem too. So it's always a guide to reading. Yeah, it definitely is. And a lot of when I actually edit my own poems, I'm just looking at line length and trying to match the way that I'm imagining the poem being read to the length of the lines so that I can get that balance right. And I love your point too about George, like having it be a moment of discovery for your reader, because I think that that's really where concrete poetry can be its best. I mean, Tashani Dashi's poem that I'm going to read later about Speedos is in the shape of a Speedo, but at the same time, it's uh, it's not like, you know, basically it's like a, a flattened triangle. You don't necessarily look at it and immediately think Speedo, or at least unless you wear a lot of Speedos, maybe, maybe you do, but for me, I don't. And that's part of why I enjoy the shape so much. So, all right, go ahead. Um, let's see, Joe Barca, I think your hand was up first. Sure, I had a Katie kudos and a question for the editors. So Katie, you'll get on a plane and two hours later, you'll post 10 poems and they'll all look perfectly plated. So that impacts how I read your poetry because it's formatted. I don't, I don't even know how you do it, Katie, but they, you know, you're sort of a poetry chef, if you will. So kudos to you for that. And then my question to the editors is I hear that a number of publications don't really have an interest in shape poetry because 
is difficult to format and put in a journal. So I'd love to hear some thoughts on that too. Yeah, I can take, I, I do, um, if I'm deciding between two poems and one's really hard to format and the other's not, um, and I can't have any other reason for deciding between the two, I will pick the easier to format one usually because it, it makes a big difference. A shape poem, you have to, um, like, like that fish poem that we read at the opening, I had to post that as an image. And then there's problems for people who are visually impaired, of course. Um, and, and so you have to have um, alt text to help them read. Um, so there are a lot of things that go into that. And, and, you know, it's impossible to HTML, you know, code in HTML poems like that. There's just no way to do it. Um, and so you lose a lot of, you lose the SEO for the, for the poem, you know, all the words that, that a search engine would find can't find because of that. Um, and so there are a lot of, and, and then also if it's a shape poem, the, you know, screen shapes are different. Everybody has a different size phone and a lot of people are watching on phones and reading on phones. And so you have to take that into account too. The shape's ruined on a smaller phone. And so there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of negatives to a shape poem in addition to the fact that in general, I think they distract. We've only published a handful in Rattle because I like to be lost in the music of the poem. And it's rare that the shape adds something rather than tracks in my opinion, but occasionally they do. So it's, it's worth talking about those too. Yeah, I think too. And now we have to call on, we have both of the editors of One Art in the house. So this is a fun, a fun event. I think we should hear from Louisa Seitzman first. I would love to hear your thoughts on this, Louisa. Hi, everyone. Um, I hope you can hear me. Um, yeah, I, I will be honest, I'm not particularly drawn to concrete or shape poetry. Um, I think I agree with Tim that it mostly distracts me from reading the poem. It's something I remember doing, like, in, say, elementary school. <laughs> and, um, like, I think it's very fun. It's a fun exercise for people to do, certainly. But I find very few concrete poems actually work for me. Um, but what does work for me, I'll speak as an editor, um, I'm particularly drawn to, drawn to lyric poetry. And if something has great line breaks i know that the saying of you know don't break your lines to make them weep um but there's something to be said about a really a surprise from one line to the next so i think that's where i stand with like plating a poem i look for the little things like um like the chefs today the fine chefs today have like tweezer food on the high-end plates um <laughs> Um, and like, you know, they, they, they do it all with little tweezers. And I feel like me looking at the line breaks like that is looking at the poem with little tweezers. If I can extend the metaphor more. That was an excellent extension of the metaphor. And I have to admit, I actually own tweezers for like food. So <laughs> I, think, I think that was pretty apt. I'm curious to hear Mark Danowski, if you being co-editor of one art, if you, uh, feel the same about Louisa or if there's a controversy at one art. Uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely no controversy there. Um, I was going to say that I, I admittedly have a strong dislike for concrete poetry and in all seriousness, please do not send any to one art. Um, it will be rejected. Um, <laughs> but I, I do, uh, I like your line, Katie, that you said the risk of it, just being a gimmick is so high, which I think is true. It's, it's incredibly high and, um, I have trouble seeing past it. Um, and then thinking too about what Tim said about his friend, just sort of being able to look at a distance at a student's work and possibly grading it. Um, 
this is always tricky territory to like admit what you might be doing behind the scenes with submissions. Um, but yeah, it is sort of like the porn joke. Like, you know it when you see it, um, but in the positive sense, uh, of like a good poem, it's very easy. I would say it's easy to spot a bad poem very, very quickly or, um, not to be quite so mean, um, a poem that simply isn't going to work or is in very early stages or uh, the writer is, um, you know, uh, very early in their writing career and, you know, um, just a novice essentially um, is that they haven't. You know, if I could cut, sure, in, yeah. cut in for a second, Mark, I want, I'm curious if you, if you sense this. So I was thinking about what you actually noticed because looking at the critique of the week poems, um, to see what we should share and, and talk about on our critique of the week on Fridays. I, I noticed that, you know, the poems that aren't going to have a lot of substance for sure. Cause I'm sort of looking in the negative more than in the positive with submissions. And, and what stands out immediately uh, is actually the words within the poem. Um, a lot of repetition within um, with, with like simple words that are boring. Do you notice that? Do you like see words out of the corner of your eye as you're reading submissions? Cause I kind of do like you sort of, you, you take in the words on the page before you even take in any of the language in a way. Did you, do you have that sense, Mark? Absolutely. Uh, I would say with some risk that I'm not always entirely reading. Um, I begin actually reading the poems when I find something interesting and my brain kind of lights up a little bit and then I'm actually paying attention. But bef- Yeah, exactly. That's my experience too. Yep. Yeah. That's the luxury of having read a billion poems between you guys, probably, I think. I can relate to poker, where like, I can play poker very mindlessly, and then I'm like, oh, wait, this is actually interesting. Because it's like you just kind of teach yourself to really process it. So I think you guys have both really earned that, and you don't need to feel any guilt about that kind of thing. Um, so right now, let's see. Mark Allen DiMartino has his hand up. And I know I read a tweet from you talking about uh, Tim having talked about the shape of a poem and everything. So I think that it's great to have you in our space for the first time. We'd love to hear hear your voice. Hi. <clears throat> Sorry, it's my first time here. Um, kind of getting used to the hands up and stuff like that. But yeah, I was really interested when I, I realized you were going to be talking about shapes in poems or shape poetry. Um, and because it was exactly um, Tim, I'm not even sure when or why, but maybe it was uh, about three years ago when I did my Rattlecast with him and we had a long conversation. I can't really remember now. And I think he mentioned something about the shape of a poem, not necessarily shape poems, and saying how like his eye just kind of falls on the shape of the poem before he reads the poem. And that is kind of like the first impact, like the dancing metaphor that he used earlier, which I loved. And ever since he said that, I've been like obsessed with the idea of the shape a poem makes, right? And just like, even if you're writing a sonnet and I write like a lot of sonnets and uh, like, I won't even consider it unless I think it has like the right balance, I guess, shape in that, in that way, like the line lengths and, 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 and the line breaks, they kind of have to make something on the page and, uh, like Tim said, it looks intentional, but it also looks like balanced and it looks like calibrated in some way that's pleasing. And um, and I always look for that when I'm reading and when I'm writing. And that's I don't know really- if like, I'm the only person who does this other than Tim or if like this is something that a lot of people do and just nobody talks about it. That's really that's interesting. interesting. Sorry. <laughs> 
with the sonnets, I have to say something about the sonnets because I got very excited. And then speak. <laughs> I'm like, I'm laying down the law right now. I wanted to say that um, I just realized with what you're talking about, one thing that I like to do in poems is I write uh, 13 line poems and call them sonnet minus ones. And then they're arranged in couplets. So the last line appears to kind of be missing because you're set up, you know, looking for these pairs. And then at the last, there's like an empty space kind of. And in a sense, because I write those poems where there's some sort of underlying theme of lost or something within it. In a sense, I guess you could argue that that's kind of a shaped poem because you're set up to have the last feeling and instead it's an empty space. So thanks for saying that, Mark, because I hadn't realized, <laughs> I hadn't realized I was doing that. Until you said that. I think John Hollander, the one who wrote the Swan poem that somebody read earlier, has a whole book called Thirteeners where he does 13 line sonnets, if you're interested. Uh, I'm interested. I will be looking at that. Thank you. I'm glad, glad that I got to pick up on that. And let's see, Mark Fitzpatrick cries has his hand up and we haven't heard from you yet. And you also shared a really interesting tweet, which was Emily Dickinson in her own handwriting, which I'm a huge Emily Dickinson fan. So that was a cool thing. And I'm excited to hear your thoughts. So the first thing I wanted to do is just come to the defense of shaped poetry. Cause like we've, I think we've been kind of taking this, um, point of view of looking at the object after the fact of writing and being like, yeah, it has, it could be too gimmicky or, you know, yada, yada. So just coming to the defense of like how fun it is to do. So it might be not everyone's favorite thing to, to look at another artist's shaped work, but some of the, like the poems I've just had fun, the most fun writing have been shaped poems. Um, like often I'll just see a word and I'll be like, that word would just have just great fodder for a shaped poem. Like, you know, the word starlet and trying to shape it into like the big dipper or something or porous. And you can just like every word, every letter has a space between it. And there you go. One word shaped poem. So um, just coming to the defense of shaped poetry, I think it's just such a fun art form um, regardless of what uh, may or may not get published in, you know, the, the magazines we most enjoy. Um, yeah, that's a bit about my feelings on that. But the Emily Dickinson thing, I, I was trying to think of, uh, with the space in mind, of a, a poet that I'm really drawn to the shape of their poetry. And she came right to mind. Like her her poetry is just so, it's the brevity and her interesting use of capitalization and line breaks. And it just, for some reason, when I like, if I saw a hundred poems on different pages, hers are the ones I'm just drawn to. But I was wondering when I was looking at, um, I was looking up her favorite of mine, this, this sloop of Amber poem. And I was on this site that had like this best buy ad and all this garbage from my phone, like around it. And I thought, I wonder what it actually looked like in her own hand. So I, I went and of course down that rabbit hole and, and found it. There's an, an archive of all of her handwritten original poems and it's of course way different so it's almost like this it kind of hit me that wow like as much as i thought i knew this poem i didn't even know what the the initial vision was of the artist as far as you know plating the poem goes and it's kind of like that um that that dance metaphor that where you have like the reader and the poet where you know, at what point does the, you know, your initial dance partner disappear and the poet be poem becomes something else over time? Um, I thought that was just a really interesting thing to look at that you might put something out in the world and then, 
you know, 100 years later, who knows how the future, you know, humans on this planet, assuming we're still around, will consume that piece of art. It could be way different. Like, you know, maybe future versions of Rattle will just be like, you know, jacked into people's brains and they'll just get an immediate download of some kind <laughs> like who knows so it's uh i think plating is one of those things where we think of it as a or i did anyway as a static art but you know there's some degree of plating which is out of our hands as you know art evolves and you know that could be a discussion for later but those are my thoughts on on shape poems yeah that's definitely the case you know if, if you guys haven't seen if you look at the pen tweet up there it's really fascinating to look at the beautiful script of emily dickinson next to the terrible awfulness of modern internet <laughs> sagas as they can be but i think uh you know the words are put on different plates just like i was talking about in the 70s how they plated fine dining is radically different than today so tim's metaphor comes to help us again because it really is so apt well, I was just going to add a couple of things uh, to what Mark said and, uh, and uh, what the other Mark said. We have three Marks here, actually. <laughs> but, uh, but, but so uh, for what, what uh, Kreis was saying just now, um, one of the things I keep thinking about is what David Kirby said, because David Kirby shapes his poems in these intricate stanzas that sort of have an arbitrariness, sort of arbitrary nature to them. They're sort of, uh, they're longish. They're usually like a certain number of lines, usually like five lines. And then they're in dense. There's like, different ways he does it and there's like no real rhyme or reason to it and on the rattlecast with him i asked him why he does that and he said because it's it's generative for him it helps him with the editing process too so if he's going through a poem um he's trying to fit this shape that he sort of arbitrarily made up it, for each stanza at the beginning of the poem it forces him to make certain decisions about which lines which words to cut and where where more needs to be added and it makes it sort of forces him through in a generative way to make the poem different and to get outside of what he expected. And so he uses the shape in that way. And, and so if you do a shape poem, I, mean, I only have a few. I did one where I'm being beamed up by aliens. And so I needed a beam coming down the center of the poem. And um, so I had to have words that were all uh, four characters long for the beam. And that made the poem a certain way. And it was kind of fun to generate the poem that way. So um, it's just, there's a way that it can do that. And the other thing I want to say to Mark uh, Alan DiMartino earlier is that his, um, you know, talking about if whether or not everybody notices, I think everybody notices subconsciously. You know, I think the same way if you walk in the room, somebody has a certain posture, if they're standing straight up with their shoulders back, you feel different than if they're sort of creeping in nervously hunched forward. And uh, each way can be the, the better way to, to be for a poem, but it makes a first impression no matter how you enter a room. And that's how the poem enters a room is with the plating of it. Yeah, I would also say cause David Kirby is one of my favorite poets. I got to studied partially under him at Florida State. And with his poem, like The Fates, what's interesting about how he chose to place that too, like you're talking about how, you know, some aspects of the stanzas are arbitrary. But what I would say too, is that he generally writes with longer line, line lengths, or I'm sorry, sentence lengths. And then the way he indents and adds indents, it allows movement and the sense that even though the sentences are long, we are going to be moving places and we're going to be really going places, which sets up the whole expectation subconsciously for what his braid poems do, which is weave together different events in a way that comes together, I think, most of the time very gloriously. So let's go ahead and hear from uh, Mark Danowski now, who's had his hand up patiently. Hey, um, that's interesting that David Kirby came up. And uh, I remember I actually solicited him early at One Art um, because I love a couple of his poems, um, like this magic moment, which people should look up. 
Um, but I only love a few of them, I realized, um, because he sent me some work and it was not to my taste and it didn't, they didn't feel like one art poems, which is just an easy shorthand for saying poems that I like, I guess. Um, and he got kind of mad at me and I don't, I'd have to look up the specifics, but he was not super polite in response to, uh, me saying like, can I have other things maybe? Um, but yeah, the longer lines were a problem, and uh, that ties into the formatting issues that came up related to concrete um, or any sort of um, something that's hard to present as plated on the page. Um, I'm not super adept with WordPress, uh, which I half regret saying as I say it, but it's true. Um, I do need to learn some things, but uh, because I'm not super adept, um, I try to keep things kind of minimalist and uh, don't make too much headaches for myself. Um, but going with that, and I've just been thinking about the plating in white space or negative space, whichever we want to call it, and uh, the tweezer food thing came up. And just thinking about, you know, humans are storytellers, and we know that food is a story. And we know that good plating tells a story. And I think that poems, you know, I believe that they require a strong narrative feature. And I think this is a reason why I, I usually have a lot of trouble with poems that are sort of all over the page. Um, I have some, some side thoughts to that, but I'll stop there. Yeah, I think that, too, we want to make sure in the space that we have time to talk to uh, Justin Tag, the boy who's been waiting patiently for us to get into more NFT-centric uh, subjects. But first, let's hear from Dick Westheimer, and then I'd love to, to get Justin, who's been waiting around, to talk about uh, some exciting things in NFT, too. So go ahead, Dick. Well, why don't you go to Justin first? I'd love to hear what he has to say. Uh, Great. Okay, that sounds good. Sure. So, Justin, you are a filmmaker. You, you've been in the space a couple times before, but haven't spoken before. So I'd love for people to understand a little bit about your background and why I think that you are one of the NFT poets making the absolute prettiest poetry right now. Oh, thank you so much, Katie. And thank you for having me on the space as well. Um, honestly, I forgot for a second that I'm <laughs> supposed to be speaking on this space because I'm so engrossed in the conversation. And yeah, I mean, for those of you that, that don't um, kind of know me and any of the work that I do, my background's in all sorts of different places. I tend to think of the work that I do as I'm a big fan of storytelling. I'm in love with storytelling. Sometimes that comes out um, as literature. Sometimes it comes out as film. Sometimes a piece of artwork tends to be the expression. Um, so I don't have uh, a particular you know, depth in any one media. And listening to the conversation so far, which has been absolutely fascinating, by the way, a few things stuck out that were particularly interesting um, kind of thinking back on my own past lives, I suppose. The first one is I, I did actually have a nine-year stint at an art school. I taught on a course called Creative Advertising. It tended to take students and prepare them to go into the creative departments of the top 10 agencies in, in London or, or in New York. And a lot of the work that I did was around um, copywriting and storytelling, which did an awful lot of filmmaking with them alongside the the kind of psychology of um, why people do the things that they do. Uh, but what's really interesting is there's an awful lot of crossover between these conversations about, you know, shaped poetry and, and concrete poetry and 
and um, copywriting. You know, there's a wonderful book. I think it's had an update and it'll probably got an updated title, but a wonderful book by a guy I worked with. He's called Giles Lingwood. Um, I think this book must be on the fifth or sixth version now. And it's, um, it, it's about copywriting. It's about some of the most fantastic pieces of copywriting, which often includes really interesting and specific use of wordplay and, and typographic layout, creative typographic layout, uh, to communicate an idea and tell a story quickly um, uh, in, in a way that is memorable. So it, th there's interesting crossover there, and I think it would be interesting for people to look at that, even though I know that there can be sometimes conflict between kind of uh, w what we might feel in the kind of artistic world to what it can seem to be like in the advertising world. There are an awful lot of incredible artists working in that space as well. Um, and the other thing was something popped up that was mentioned about being able to look at a poem and, and know whether it's going to be any good or not. You know, there's actually um, a similar thing that happens in the film industry you can often pick up a script and you can feel the weight of it and you know if this is right or not you know you can look at the white space on a page and instantly know if this is a well laid out script and if somebody knows what they're doing and that is often two of the first checks for a reader who's got a pile of screenplays to get through um, so it's really interesting how you find these things in uh, across all sorts of media um, I, I suppose the thing that's that I also wanted to flag because it's so interesting to me is I, I, I totally understand the, the point around shaping a poem for the sake of doing it doesn't feel like um, it's necessarily a, a great plan, but I do love it when language is undone. You know, I, I'm not particularly interested in novelty, but the idea of words being kind of almost like the pixels of of language as long as we know why we're doing it, there's something really interesting about how we can change the emotional experience that somebody might have when reading something, when we think of the page as a character. I think in, in an entire book of poetry, everything being shaped in an unusual way would probably be incredibly annoying, and I understand how that would be difficult to um, you know, publish uh, in, in, in a journal, for example. But the idea that you can give somebody an experience of reading in a particular way and then and then undo that experience by letting the the words fall off the page i do love that idea that if there's a sense of discomfort you can make it uncomfortable to read you know if there's a sense of flow then how can we demonstrate that flow is something you know being emotionally undone then let the letters fall from that line you know there's an awful lot of fun if you've got a clear intention and maybe my mind sneaks more towards novel than it does poetry there, you know, when you've already set up um, an expectation. Um, but, yeah, I mean, those are just a whole bunch of thoughts that I was kind of thinking as everybody was having this wonderful conversation. And I'll, I'll kind of stop rambling there for a second to see if there's anything <laughs> worth asking. I don't think you were rambling. I think it was great. And it really, to me, what you were saying, I realized it's what how I feel overall about the whole subject is just that there is a best shape and I really do believe this a best shape for every single poem that's out there and to me that one of your jobs one of many jobs as a poet is to find the absolute best shape that you can make that poem and occasionally that's going to be like I think it's a taken literal funny shape or something that's more clearly a shape um, but a lot of times it's going to be the you know the the fun debates we get to have as poets like 
Do we have, do I want to use quatrains here or tercets? And like, these are things that I personally really obsess over. <laughs> I think a lot of people here do too. And I also wanted to say too, Justin, that one thing I was thinking about in terms of plating poems is with your, you have a really cool NFT collection out, which I, you know, I'm not trying to uh, sound chilly, but I want to just disclose that I bought one of, um, because A, you were combining poetry with playing cards, which is kind of, kind of my wheelhouse anyway. But I love the way that you design this collection. It creates negative space around each card, which allows one to focus more on each of the individual poems that are set on playing cards. And I really love how you went about doing that. Yeah, thank you so much, Katie. I mean, that, that project, um, it's, it's called Poetry Cards, and it's evolved from one thing into something else. You know, it originally was just going to be a really playful way of releasing a little bit of poetry and asking people to, to review it because it, it took on the form of a, kind of like a top trumps card and there were categories there that had traits that encouraged a, more, a playful re-reading of the poet poem that was being delivered um but as i got deeper into the project um I, I got very very interested in this idea of delivering a cohesive narrative across i think there's 80 um individual you know trading cards and using the medium that i'd set up of the digital trading card and the expectations people have by the time they get to say poem 40 or 50 um, and using that as something that i can then undo later into the collection um, as, as again a, a way of making the page a character and using it to help emphasize or punctuate an emotional experience during that story that's we're, we're we're not far off that i think i've released about 35 so far and i'm trying to do it um you know ideally every day but gas makes that a problem sometimes doesn't it but yeah it's it is important to me to think about how the visual language that we use can can help to punctuate the emotional experience, the narrative experience, because that's that, that's where I come from primarily. Unlike a lot of people here, are so you know fantastically deep into um, the poetry world and know so much more in that way than than I do. I would say, you know, my place is certainly in narrative and storytelling, and, and how can we help tell that story in a more effective way by using all the elements of a page uh, in our favour. Yeah, that's really well said. I definitely agree with all of that. And that it's just, you know, it's not, poems are not just words to me, you know, even if with ignoring the idea of can a poem just be a poem without words, just ignoring that part of it, it, it is, you know, it is a character. I love seeing it as that way. I'm sure when I'm editing my poems, I'm going to start like internalizing that and thinking about my poor Google Docs, <laughs> some sort of character in this now. So let's go ahead. I think um, Mark Fitzpatrick probably has something NFT to weigh in on this, I would guess, too. Yeah, I'll make this quick. I think uh, Dick had a few things to say there, but I, listening to Devoid and also Katie, your comment about Best Shape, um, I've been contemplating Tim's sheet music metaphor. And through this conversation and listening, I think what hit me about um, plating is that I think the the shapes of poems that I find resonate most with me is are ones that are open to interpretation. It's like um, Tim was talking about jazz music. Like you might get a, a sheet of music that has, you know, some outline of a, you know, a jazz song there, but there's a lot, there's a lot open to participation from whoever is going to play it that night. So I think, I think poems that kind of balance that, that line between, 
um, author's intent, but also, um, you know, leaving some line breaks open to uh, potential different readings and stanza breaks open to different potential readings, depending on maybe what the reader's bringing to it. I think um, plating a poem or shaping it in a way where there's that participatory aspect left open, I think um, that's something I'm going to think about a little bit more as a, you know, a part of the art of poetry that uh, that's quite intriguing and, and fun to work on. So just a, just a comment there. Yeah, that immediately makes me think of haiku and all the space that is around, you know, when there are only a few words, the space around the words allows for more interpretation. And that's probably part, <laughs> a big part of why I love haiku so much is right there, the ability to do that. And I tend to write poems, you know, that have really short lines because, you know, I like the slower read and the more time to, to chew on the individual words and also just more time. You look at, at a word longer when it's surrounded by white space. It's like a highlighter right on the page, at least for me. So let's go ahead now, Dick Westheimer. I'd love to hear what you're thinking about all this now. Well, gosh, when I go so long between uh, between speaking, I have all these wonderful, wonderful things that I'm thinking about because of what people have said. First of all, I am now sitting up straight because of what Tim said about how people think about people who slouch. Um, so for the entirety of what I'm going to say, I'll try to sit up straight. Um, so there, there. I'm thinking along two lines. The, the first is, is the writing of poems. And, you know, we, 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 each, we each come to the poem differently. But I'm, I am somewhat of the David Kirby mind, which is not the, his form or long lines necessarily, but it is that the first couple of uh, lines in a poem tend to dictate what the rest of the form will be in the poem for me. So it's not like I like short ones or I like long ones. It's just if the phrasing of the first few lines is, you know, very short couplets or longer tercets or something like that, then that sort of enforces this generative shape for me for the rest of the poem. So this is, uh, it's almost the opposite of plating in that um, unless unless you say it's like the size of the plate that you pull from the shelf or the shape of the plate dictates what food will be put on it. In this case, that's what's happening is, is that those first couple of lines come out as, you know, a, you know, half page long line couplets. That's often how the rest of the poem will unfold, at least the first draft. The other thing I was thinking about was in some respects, we're having the same conversation that we've had before about the differences and similarities of performance and slam poetry and page poetry. And that there, you know, page poetry is one way in which uh, poems unfold for a reader. Slam poetry is another way, you know, performance poetry that poems unfold for a, a somebody who's listening to the poem, often not translatable to the page. Um, I heard about Devoid's conversation about you know how these different signifiers, in a more multimedia form, can create a different experience. And you know, I'm I'm wondering if calling all of these things poetry as opposed to some other art form does them each justice, because if you know a, a 
somebody who, who curates a page poetry journal like Tim or, or Mark, um, you know, they're looking for something different than somebody who's curating an NFT um, collection of, of poems, which has to have different features. So I, in some respects, we put ourselves at odds with each other by, you know, my preferences for page poetry. I love, I love sort of like trying to figure out how to make that work for a reader. And so I get sort of in a place where I'm rejecting this other thing being called poetry. And that's just not right. It, it's, it's, it, it makes me feel like we have to have different ways to think about these things than to throw them all into the same bucket. That's definitely true. At the same time, though, the more we have names and Fisher and fraction ourselves off, the more we might not think about different things we can do that can enhance our poems. I mean, within NFT poetry, I tend to be pretty darn traditional compared to a lot of the amazing work going on before me. But like, for example, when I just did the book that I did, I had, um, you know, everybody minted a unique cover to go with that book and that i think added to the to the poems because it added to the sense of this poetry book is only yours you know this isn't something that you know i'm going to print on demand 50 copies of or something this is only your book of poetry so i think that there's a lot of opportunity if we look into the realms that maybe aren't exactly what we're thinking our natural fit for us to reach and cross over and find ways to extend our own poems yeah, I totally agree. And uh, just looking back at the show, we were sort of running out of time. But to wrap it up, I love the idea. The two things I heard um, first, Katie saying that every poem has its best form. I love that idea, way of thinking about it. And then to avoid saying that the, that the poem, um, you know, that the form of the poem, the shape of the poem can be a character. And I think I love those two ideas. And, and those you know, relate universally to whatever um, we're, we're encountering or wherever we're, whatever purpose we have, there's the right purpose for every poem. Um, do you want me to share, Katie, this, uh, the train poem form really quick before we, uh, you do your final poem? I think yours is short, right? Yeah, I actually think I almost should just let you do that as the final poem, because I feel like reading the comeback of Speedos at this point, I mean, this is a mixed crowd. Everybody knows what the poem looks like. <laughs> it's pinned to the top if they want to read about the Speedos. And I, I think I prefer to close off on your beautiful poem. Oh, well, thanks for saying that. Um, this is the, the, the thing that I was probably most happy about that ever happened to me with poems, actually. I've been writing poems in this style for about 15 or 18 years or something like that. Uh, but it took such a long time to find the shape because there's a way that, that sort of a poem would come out sometimes where it was like this flow. Just I, I felt like it was just like, like it just came out on its own, you know, and there was like no stopping it. And I would just try to write, hoping I could keep up with the pace of the poem that was coming out. And so in my book, American Fractal, um, American Fractal, the title poem is in this shape. Um, I think there are five poems in this shape. Usually they're longer, um, but sometimes they're shorter too. It's just where the poem ends up going. Um, but I couldn't figure out for the longest time how to make that poem appear on the page. So I tried short lines. I tried longer lines. I tried scattered across the page lines. I tried all sorts of different things. Um, trying to make it out. And you can actually, if you check out American Fractal, um, Cooking Dinner is a poem like that too. And yet I shaped it in a different way, trying to figure out how to, how to make it so people would read the poem the right way. And then uh, when the book came out, there was a radio show that did, uh, I think it was at the University of Pennsylvania, maybe, or something like that, Penn State. Um, but they had a, a review and sort of a whole half an hour episode about the book that I wasn't involved with. 
they just like reviewed and talked about the book and read a couple poems and the host read the poem exactly as I intended it, even though all she could do is see the poem. And that was like really the happiest moment <laughs> of my poetry career. I think when I found this shape for these poems and, um, and they were actually interpreted the right way. And so, um, and which is like this sort of steady, th if you see it on the page, it's the never will I ever poem was just the most recent example, but um, it's, it's a, actually a prose poem um, with a lot of white space around sort of little sections. And so there's no, like to what Kreis was saying before, there's, there's no, there's a sort of a, a way you can interpret the poem. It's sort of open where you can pause and where you don't have to. And I always think of it as like this, this train running, rushing past and there's words and they never stop. And you don't know when they're going to stop. And, uh, and each one's kind of the length of maybe a train car, each little phrase. And so, and, but it's just a prose poem too, that can be shaped however the, the space fits. So, um, but you can see how this works. You can see other poems like this in American Fractal, but this is Never Will I Ever, which will close up the, the show, I guess. Never Will I Ever. I'll never pace the aisle of a grocery store at 1 a.m. wondering about the right ice cream. Never live in a tiny house across the lawn from another tiny house gazing out from a tiny window as the porch light shuts off. Never drive a motorcycle. Never cling to a cliff free solo. Never jump out of a perfectly good airplane. No parachute packed by hand. Never wander through the land. Drive for hours in silence. Never talk the smallest talk. Never forget I shouldn't sing. Never be unafraid of anything. Never lie in a hammock waiting for the meteor. Never wonder if there might be more there's more and that's how those poems come out and there's a way to show them on the page which i think is the right way for the the style of the poem so i was very happy when i when i figured out how to do that and uh and i think that's a kind of plating too i think it definitely is too and it speaks to you know the individualism of poets you know for you too you i think very quickly tim you have to and you have a billion things going on all the time so like that is a natural form to come out of you because your thoughts run so fast. Otherwise, you know, rattle wouldn't be as amazing as it is, is, is the truth. So I think that's an yeah, amazing thanks, form you've come up with. Yep, it is. Well, thanks. So thanks so much to everybody for coming. I found this space fascinating. It's really evolved my, my whole thinking on this. I particularly avoid... I, uh, I particularly enjoyed devoid, which is too many voids, apparently to say a coherent sentence, talking about the page as a character, which I think is something I will take with me. I really learned a lot from everybody today. Thanks so much for joining. And next week, Tim, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> well, we just said this moments ago, but uh, we're going to talk about yeah. news poems uh, next yeah. week and, and whether or not maybe even news poems should exist. I don't know. I hate the news. And yet we have uh, news poems for rattle. So <laughs> we'll talk yeah. about that, about whether or not poetry should address current events or not, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it's an interesting question and, and how you can go about it in an interesting way that, that's meaningful and not causing harm, maybe we could say. Uh, so I don't know. We'll think about it and, and talk more. Uh, we had a different plan, but we, we switched to that one at the last minute. Due to an important speaker who shall remain anonymous not being able to be here next week. So exactly. <laughs> we'll say that. Thanks, you guys, so much for coming. And it was really interesting. Thanks for briefing. I'm going to be like, also, this is going to translate to me plating dinner tonight. Hope you guys are prepared because there's going to be tweezering, okay? <laughs> In honor of Louisa. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great rest right, of your day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.